If you turn with me in the Word of God to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20, and our text is found in verses 17 through to 19. Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. The Passion Week in a nutshell. The Passion Week in a nutshell. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day, he shall rise again. The Passion Week in a nutshell. We have four Gospels. We thank God for that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are all each different. And yet they are all very similar in the essentials. What is a Gospel? Well, a gospel basically is a book that has two parts. It has the life of Christ to the Passion Week, and then it has the Passion Week. That's what a gospel is. It describes Christ and his life up until the start of the Passion Week, and then it particularly focuses on the Passion Week. The highlight of every gospel is the Passion Week. And every gospel has that account. The Lord's going up to Jerusalem until his resurrection on the Lord's Day morning. A whole week. The four gospels focus on that. So that one week includes his death. Christianity always concentrates on the death of Christ. He was crucified for us. The death of Christ and the Passion Week, out of his whole life, is really only 0.005%. That one week is just 0.005% of all the weeks that he lived throughout his 33 years or thereabouts. And yet, the Gospels focus upon that 0.005% of his life. 32% of Matthew focuses on the Passion Week. 37% of Mark focuses on the Passion Week. Seven days. 20% of Luke focuses on the Passion Week. And 35% of John focuses on the Passion Week. So clearly, every gospel is about setting the stage for the Passion Week. That's the highlight. 
And that is the account of our Lord's sufferings so, and his death. So what is a gospel? Well, a gospel is just a long introduction about his life and the highlight of his passion. That's what a gospel is. A gospel is a unique narrative in the history of literature. It's unique. Nothing else like it in literature. And we have four of those unique writings, which are the foundation of our holy religion. So clearly in Christianity and in the Gospels, the focus is on the sufferings and the cross work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says we preach Christ crucified. We preach a gospel. And what is our gospel that we preach? Our gospel is Christ. His person and life, but especially His crucifixion. We preach Christ crucified. That is the gospel. And that is the essence of the gospel narrative. Every gospel is just an ascent to Jerusalem for the highlight of the Passion Week, which culminates in the death and the resurrection of our Lord. That's the mountain peak of the gospel. But what we have here is the Passion Week in a nutshell, in a few lines, a few sentences. And the amazing thing about this description of the Passion Week In a nutshell, it's given by the Lord Jesus and it's given before the Passion Week starts. It's a prophecy. And before he goes into the Passion Week, he takes his disciples apart and he he describes it in detail. He gives them it in a nutshell. On the very eve of it, as he's just about to enter into Jerusalem, he's in the vicinity of Jericho. Jerusalem's still quite a way, a bit away up, up in the heights. He's en route there, and he takes the twelve apart, and he gives them the week ahead in a nutshell. But he only gives it to the twelve. He took the twelve apart, it says in verse 17, and said unto them. You see, there's more than twelve following him. The Lord Jesus was followed by many disciples. There were scores and scores, and very many of them were women. But he takes the twelve, because the twelve are special. They're going to be the preachers and the writers of these gospels and the spreader of his message. And he takes the twelve apart, and he tells them, what lies ahead. And so he predicts his passion as he approaches it. So he gives them a prophetic picture in a nutshell of the week ahead. And what I want to do concerning this nutshell is first of all consider why the Lord does that. Why does he give them the passion summary prior to it? 
We want to consider that. And then we want to look at the things he particularly highlights in his passion. Why then, first of all, why does he give this prophetic nutshell? Matthew is there. And Matthew wants to tell us this remarkable fact that he, he, he gave us the prediction of what lay ahead. He just told us it all, clear as day. And we have to ask, why, why does he do that? Well, why did the Lord do that? And not only does Matthew write it, Mark records it too. And Luke also, and he even gives us a few extra details, Luke also records it, that he, he gave the Passion Week in a nutshell to his apostles before, before he went up into Jerusalem. So why, why did he do it? The Spirit wants us to know that Christ predicted it all. He predicted his cross. The Holy Ghost wants us to know that. Why? And of course, there are several answers, but clearly it was for our confidence and our faith and for our assurance. The eleven, I know twelve were told, but one is Judas. He died soon. But the eleven... They would soon reflect on this. The Lord predicted it all. They will reflect on. He told us it all before it came to pass. Well, what would they learn from that then? He, he showed them many things when he told them this. He showed them, first of all, that he cared for them. And whenever they reflect on that, they'll see that he cared for us when he told us that. Because he was forewarning us. He was preparing us for the shock. You see, it's quite a shock that they're going to lose their master. It's quite a shock that he's going to suffer the shame and the humiliation, their teacher that they believed in and trusted in, their teacher who was their glory. It's going to be quite a shock for them when he is shamed and crucified. And he's preparing them for it. He's forewarning them. And that is his kindness and cure for them so that it, it doesn't come upon them as an overwhelming surprise. You see, brethren and sisters, a little forewarning helps us a little forewarning of approaching adversity enables us to brace. Like when an airplane is going to crash. We're going to crash. Forewarning. Brace. And you have some preparation. And why does the pilot do that? Because he cares. And he wants them to survive the crash. And our Lord Jesus Christ is preparing his apostles. Brace! Brace! For there's a great shock coming. So it's his care. It's his kindness. You know, and at the time they really didn't recognize it. And the words just seemed to go over their head. But later on, they must have reflected on it and saw his care, his kindness, his love. And so he gives them it in a nutshell because he cures for them. And he wants to keep them from despair when it befalls him. And you see that last part especially? He tells them 
he shall rise again the third day, is to keep them and sustain them through the adversity of that suffering. So it's therefore to keep them from despair. Our Lord still does that. Whenever his people are going to go through adversity, he prepares us. There is always in some form or other the word to brace. It's coming. It might be a word. It might be something that you're reading. It stands out. It jumps out. And, and you realize, my master is telling me there's something coming. Or it might be a sermon that you hear. And maybe at the time it, it doesn't go in, it just goes over your head, you don't think. But then when the adversity comes and you look back and you reflect on it, you see your Lord had been preparing you for that. There had been that brace. And at the time you didn't recognize it. But later on you seen, yes, he was preparing me for that. The Lord still does that. And you will find that in your experience, people of God, and I'm sure you already have. And when a terrible adversity and trial has come into your life, it has not overwhelmed you because your Lord has prepared you for it. It's his care. And so he gives them it in a nutshell because, because he cares for them. And then he, he tells them it all in, in specific detail so that they will know for sure he is a prophet and that he knows all things. And they will never doubt his word again because at the end of the Passion Week and after his resurrection, they will reflect, he told us it all. He told us about the betrayal. He told us about the shame. He told us about the crucifixion. He told us it all. He's a true prophet. He knows everything. He's our Lord. And their confidence and faith would be intensified and increased after his resurrection. That is why Peter could say after the resurrection, Lord, thou knowest all things. Well, how could Peter say that? Because it had been manifest in our Lord's ministry. He knew all. You knew the Passion Week, Lord. You knew you'd be crucified. You knew you would rise again the third day. Lord, you know everything. You know my heart. And you know that I love you. You know all things, Lord. And so their faith and confidence in his omniscience and in his ministry as the true and final prophet to the church would be increased and intensified. They would know he's a prophet like unto Moses. They would know he is truly the Messiah whose prophetic word is true. And so it's for the increase of their faith and assurance and, and confidence and the uh, conviction that they have not followed cunningly devised fables. What, what man could, could show the Passion Week in detail even before it happened? What man could do that? And so they would know we haven't followed cunningly devised fables. He's a true Messiah. And so we can trust Christ. We can trust in His Word. It's true. He knows everything. And His words are, are to be believed. And His words are to be received. And so we can study our Gospels and all the words of our Lord Jesus with confidence, knowing that 
Everything that he says is true. And we don't have to doubt and hesitate in the, in the age of a philosophy where they question everything and deny the Bible and all this and that. But we can have confidence in our Lord no matter what the world says. And no matter what the educated profess. We believe our Lord and we have not followed cunningly devised fables such as the Mohammedans do when they follow the Quran, cunningly devised fables. But our holy religion is not like that. It is based on evidence and factuality. And then also thirdly, he is telling them all of this beforehand so that they will realize, perhaps not at the moment that they hear it, but later on reflection, reflection they will realize that the sufferings of our Lord were no accident. They were no accident. But they were in the very plan and purpose of God, that the cross was planned, that all of these things were planned in every detail. It was all in God's control and it was all planned. How does the Lord Jesus Christ know all of this detail? Because he knows the plans of God. He knows what has been ordained. He knows the cross has been ordained. He knows that he's the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And he's telling his disciples so, so that they will have confidence that the cross is no accident. That it's in the plan or purpose. They might not understand all the theology of the cross. The Holy Spirit has not been given on Pentecost yet and the Lord hasn't given that great sermon yet after his resurrection. So they, they don't have understanding perhaps of all the theology of the cross. But they're going to know the cross is no accident. It's in the plan and purpose of God. It's in the decrees. And him who alone can unloose the seals and reveal the decrees he does it that day as they make their descent up to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. The cross is in the plan of God. And lastly, they would, or fourthly, they would learn especially the Lord's great love for his Father and for them. You see, the Lord knew all of this, and he told them so. He told them what lay ahead. And, and still he goes up. Still he goes up. He knew the cross. He knew the cross was ahead. He told them, they'll crucify him. But he still goes up. He still goes up with his face like a flint to Jerusalem. He doesn't run away. The cross could easily be avoided. We avoid it. We avoid the cross. We can avoid the cross easy enough. We just keep our head low. But he didn't avoid it. A Roman crucifixion is the worst form of death. It is a most terrible impalement. Impalement is the most horrid forms of execution. Not only horrible and painful, but most humiliating and shameful. 
And he knows he's going up to that. But he goes up. Crucify him. But he goes up. And why does he go up? He's showing them his love. His love for the Father. It's in the Father's plan. I go up to Jerusalem. It's for the sheep's salvation. I go up to Jerusalem to give my life for the sheep. And so he didn't turn back. His heart is fixed. His will is determined. And he did it in love for his Father and his love for his people. You remember how it says in John's Gospel? When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of the world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. They will see his great love. He, he did not avoid the cross. He knew it. Oh, he knew it. I mean, I, I think that's amazing. You know, uh, that, that's why it's so good and blessed not to know the future. Because, you know, the future... <laughs> It isn't really pleasant. Death is not pleasant, and it's not easy, and it's good we don't know how we're going to die. It's good that it just comes upon us and lasts a few hours or a few days and whatever, and that's it over. But if you knew all the detail you know, early in your life, how would you do it? But the Lord knew. And the Lord knew it was impalement, and yet he went on. So great is his love for his people. And so he looked, he steadfastly set his face to go up on to Jerusalem. And the disciples were amazed. That's why he told them that they might see his love and his cure. Well, having looked at why he gives them it in a nutshell, let us quickly then consider the points that he highlights about his passion. These are the things that stand out in his own mind. There are so many other things that week that happened that he doesn't say about. But these are the things that stand out in his mind. Why, why do these things stand out in his mind? Because these are the things that really hurt him. That's why. They, these are the really sore points. He, he's, un, he's unburdening his heart. He knows all of this is going to befall him. And the really sore points, he, he just unburdens to them. The twelve, the twelve, he tells them. You see, our Lord was was a true man. And as a true man, he needed fellowship. And he wanted to share things. Things that hurt with his friends. And these are the things that are, that are hurting him. And he just wants to share them with his friends. And so he, he doesn't say these things as an emotionless robot you know, without feeling. No, these are the really hurtful parts of his passion. I want you to notice that. And the first thing is the betrayal. He says, the Son of Man shall be betrayed. That hurts. That really hurts him. A betrayal, of course, requires a betrayer. And a betrayer is one who is a close friend, formerly. He takes the twelve apart, and he knows that one of them is, is going to be the betrayer. You know, he doesn't even know it himself yet. Judas doesn't know it yet. He hasn't contrived this, mind, this plan in his mind yet. He hasn't seen the feet 
the, the, the woman using all the ointment yet, and all the things that has made him angry and turned him against the Lord. He hasn't seen any of that yet. He hasn't planned to betray, but the Lord knows that he will. And he says he'd be betrayed. A betrayer is a friend. And the Lord knows that Judas will commit that sin. And he mentions it first because it's really close to his heart and it hurts. And of course it starts the ball rolling, doesn't it? There's no cross without the betrayal. The betrayal is the very first stage that sets it all in motion. And it leads to the cross. And we must remember that's what sin does. One sin just leads to another. And the sin of betrayal in our Lord's life led to the awful cross. Oh, Judas, he didn't know the hurt that he would do until it was too late and he couldn't face the despair of it. And he hung himself. It was a real hurt to Jesus. Just like anybody portrays us and lets us down. And, you know, we thought they were friends and they just, they just went and told all and just betrayed us. And, you know, it hurts. The Son of Man will be betrayed. And so the Savior is going to feel what treachery does. The wounds begin in the house of his friends among the twelve that he tells it all to. The wounds begin there. The wounds in the house of a friend are hard to bear. But that's treachery. But you know something? He doesn't sack Judas. And he doesn't say to Judas outside Jericho, go on your bike. He doesn't say that to Judas. He doesn't do that. He doesn't get rid of him. No, it's, it's part of the cross that he has to bear. He just has to bear the cross of a traitor. He has to bear it. And sometimes we have to bear it. Why does he bear it? Because he's telling us, brethren and sisters, sin is treachery. Sin is the greatest treachery. Our sin is treacherous. Our sin that he bears. He bears our sin. And what's the greatest characteristic of our sin? It is treachery. Treachery against the good God. Treachery against a heavenly friend. A gracious friend. Our sin is treachery. And the Lamb of God must feel the, the soreness and the pain of treachery. He'll be betrayed. He'll be betrayed. And do not think that Judas, the treachery of Judas, is bringing Christ to the cross. No. Our treacherous sins are bringing Christ to the cross. This should get the apostles thinking. Betrayed? Is it I? Is it I? You know, the Lord, this isn't the only time the Lord mentions us. He mentions it time and time again. Several times he mentions it. It really hurts him. 
And, and, and these apostles should be saying, is it I, is it I, is it I? It should get them praying, it should get them thinking. It should get them crying unto God and say, oh, don't let me be the treacherous man to such a dear Lord. The sin of treachery he bears. But then the second point that he highlights is the condemnation. The Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him. It starts with the traitor, but the traitor puts him into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. It's always at the hands of man. He'd be betrayed, that's a man that does that. He'd put me in the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. They'll condemn me. And the Gentiles, they'll mock me and crucify me. It's always the hands of man he's suffering that. And the traitor puts them into the hands of, of the religious leaders. So the first, the first hurting hands was a close apostle. And the second hurting hands are religious leaders. Priests and scribes. And what do their hands do? Well, what do the priests do? The priests pray. They lift up the holy hands in the tabernacle and the temple and they pray. And what do the scribes do with their hands? They write the scriptures. They're dealing with the text of the Bible. They're writing out the Bible verses all the time and copying them from the people. For the people, they're the scribes, the chief priests and the scribes, and their hands should be for these holy things, praying, and in the sacrifice of the temple, and in the handling of Scripture, the text, the sacred text. But whenever they get Jesus into their hands, do they pray over him? Whenever they get Jesus into their hands, do they go through the text to see who it is that they have in their hands? No. When they get Jesus into their hands, they condemn him. And the Lord felt that. These are the men who pray. These are the leaders. These are the people who build the temple. The builders. They're the builders. The men of the book. And he's in their hands. And they should be enthroning him and crowning him and following him. But what do they do? They condemn him. He feels that. What does the Bible say? The stone which the builders rejected. The religious leaders want only one thing, and they're determined to get it, and they do his condemnation. And that's a condemnation to death. We read about it in the Gospels. What think ye? And they answered him, He's guilty of death. And when the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And it really hurt him. And he felt it, this condemnation. And that's what sin does. It makes us to be condemned. And here's the sin bearer in the hands of the religious leaders. And he's condemned. He's condemned. Wrongly by them, but as one who's bearing our sin in the just providence of God, it's a righteous condemnation. Because he's a sin bearer and he's going to be bearing our sins and standing in our stead so that we won't be condemned and the condemnation will go. He's standing in our place. That's our only hope, men and women. That the condemned one was condemned in our place. 
Then the third thing is the deliverance to the Gentiles. And shall deliver him to the Gentiles. From Judas, which is Judah, of course, it starts in Judah, the sin of Judah, and then Israel, the sin of all the religious leaders, the builders, and then into the hands of the Gentiles. Out of the tribe of Judah, condemned by Israel, handed over to the Gentiles. He's handled by the whole world, Jews and Gentiles. He's handled by the whole world, and by the whole world, he's mistreated and abused. And so when they bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the Roman, the Roman governor. And the whole, whole world has a hand in his death, Jews and Gentiles. Why? Because he suffers for the whole world. And Jews and Gentiles lie in wickedness. And he's going to be the propitiation for all races of men. And so the whole world has a hand in it. And the Gentiles are no better than the Jews. And then so he mentions what the Gentiles do. And there are three hurtful things that the Gentiles do. We must be very quick here. First of all, they mock him. They mock him. They mock Jesus. Now how they did that, well, having the time to go into the, the spat on him, they, they stripped him, there were so many things, but they humiliated him, they shamed him, they laughed him to scorn, they shoot out the lip, they despised of men, so they mock him, they mock him. It's hard to be mocked. The humiliation of being paraded and stripped naked and the shame, the shame. Oh, he feels that. Our dear Lord feels that with all his sensitivities as a sinless man. He feels it and he tells us, friends. And then the, the other thing that, oh, he must tremble at the thought and scourge him. To mock, to scourge. Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the Lord Jesus foresees it, and with a tremble through his body, he says it. The scourge. Now of the pain and the life-threatening danger of a Roman scourge, I have spoken in the past. It's not like a Jewish whipping, I can tell you. That was limited by 39 lashes. It was carried out by one hand with a comparatively milder whip. A Roman scourge caused massive internal bleeding. It affected vital organs, especially the lungs and the liver, and the traumatic shock itself was enough to kill a man. And probably humanly speaking, it was the factor in hastening the death of our Lord, though we must never forget he gave himself. It was agonizing. And as I said, the Lord must say the word with a shudder, but still he does, and he does not hide his back from the smiters. He still goes to Jerusalem, the Lamb of God, 
lovingly goes to Gabbatha for the scourging. But there's something worse still, and to crucify. Now we're not at the pinnacle of the passion until we get to Golgotha. And there now he is, Calvary, to crucify. He sees it. When they came to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him with two malefactors of one on his left side and the other on his right. They crucified him. The Lord shows it to his apostles. And so the Roman impalement, a worse deathbed than any other, such is the way that the Savior must trust as he bears our sins. The last note is one of hope and cheer. It is the note of resurrection. The cross, bless God, is not the end. And the third day, he shall rise again. And after the sufferings, he tells them of the glory, because he sees it all. And who for the glory that was before him endured the cross, despised the mocking and the scourging and the impalement for the glory of the resurrection and his enthronement at the right hand of God. He sees it all. And so it was all fulfilled, brethren and sisters, and it all came to pass. And today, today, he is the living risen Savior. And what was it all about, this passion? Ah, we know what it was all about. It was for your sins and mine. This is our hope. This is all our salvation. Our Lord's passion for us and his resurrection for us. And so trust him. You have not followed cunningly devised fables. Believe in the crucified, risen Lord. Amen.